0: Ooh. No, I promise you, I'll only go for 90. Well, I've had the good pleasure of spending a fair bit of time with Tony Campolo a few times over the years. Um, I had the honour of hosting him in his last visit, probably in Australia. Um, he's now 88 and he's had a stroke and he's a bit more um, you know, confined, uh, but he's still very well and we occasionally communicate Nevertheless, he reports to his office um, every day and provokes everyone who's all the interns and the people doing his ministry. Uh, If you haven't heard of Tony Campolo, he would be one of uh, this generation's, the last hundred years' most effective evangelists, but he's also a professor of sociology, an author of over 40 books, and he's still a passionate quoter of the Bible wherever he goes. He's always quoting verses um, wherever he goes. He's a humble man still living in the home that he and his wife, Peggy, bought 50-some years ago. One of his things and responsibilities that Tony Campolo used to have was he was the chaplain to President Bill Clinton. Of course, that meant that he had a lot of work to do, he freely admits, but it also meant that he had the opportunity for deep and honest conversations with President Clinton and his wife, Hillary, and their daughter, Chelsea. One time after President Clinton had finished being the president, he requested a visit with Tony as he was coming through Philadelphia. Tony was used to these huge visits of a president with the massive motorcade and security and the sweeping of everything, And, uh, and he, but he jokingly, jokingly said to President Clinton, that's fine, I'll pick you up at the airport. To which Bill Clinton said, sure, that's fine. Um, and Tony was joking, but Bill Clinton wasn't. So the day arrived, and. Tony drove like a 25-year-old old old bomb, I don't know what it was, I won't say valiant, Mike, but a a Ford or a Chrysler, just like an old bomb car. Uh, He doesn't have any, Like he lives very simply. Um, And he drove his old bomb car to the special pickup section at the airport uh, and he went through the security area and once the car was swept and he was verified, he passed through the boom gate and he found that he was driving his old bomb brown car on the tarmac... He Philadelphia Airport. He saw where the plane would pull up, and so he thought, I should drive over there. And he went over, there was the ladders and the security and all of that that was waiting, and he was guided where to stop, and then he waited. And then he saw the aeroplane come in and land on the runway and taxi over, and the steps were wheeled over to the plane, and Bill Clinton disembarked and walked over to Tony Campolo's old bomb car and hopped in the passenger seat. True story. Ahead of the car were five police on motorbikes and two black security cars, and behind were another two black security cars and five motorcycles, all guarding this old, bomb-dented, brown laminex—you know, with the laminex fake wood paneling along the bottom half—on um, the lower part of the car. I can't remember where Tony told that he was, told me that he was driving to, but the Valiant looked completely conspicuous in between, the most po- between this powerful security motorcade that was protecting the former president. It's a good illustration for our passage this morning. There was the former president of the most powerful nation in the world who knew goodness knows what national secrets and who had direct contact with any world leader. In Tony Campolo's 20-plus-year-old brown dented car puttering along on the Philadelphia roads it was a car that on any other day was unremarkable but on this occasion in a worldly sense it carried great treasure Paul tells us in verse 7 we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us Paul is speaking, of course, about the very spirit of the living God who resides in our mortal bodies when we invite Christ into our life. Let me say it another way. Our bodies, with their limited abilities and their knocks and bumps and dents and imperfections and capacity for physical and mental illness and, of course, their great capacity for harm and hurt and sin, also house the holy, redeeming Spirit of God when we invite Him him to take up residence. Now this is a photo of a familiar house that's going to pop up in the media this week. It's quite a house indeed, Buckingham Palace. Now this selfie was taken by yours truly in 2015 when I was on a work trip that happened to coincide with the ashes test at (laughs) Lord's and a visit to my cousins. As anyone who's seen Buckingham Palace will attest, it's quite a palace and it's in the most prominent of positions. It's iconic and it's a natural tourist mecca for a photo, as you can see me and all the other thousands of people who were there that day did. But what really matters about Buckingham Palace and what adds to whether it's an important building or not? Is, weather, is, is, the, is the flag that's flying on the top there. So you can see there is a flag flying. But there are two flags that fly there. If the monarch, in that time it was the queen, it would now be the king. If the monarch is in residence, the royal standard flies and it means that that is the seat of the throne. But if the monarch is away somewhere, and at this time uh, it's actually a Union Jack flying up there because it was July and the mon- and Queen Elizabeth would have been up in Balmoral... Um, thus just the national flag, the Union Jack flies. Sure, it's Buckingham Palace, but what really matters that determines its status and function is who is in the palace. Is it just a historic palace or is it the seat of the throne? Buckingham Palace, in a real sense, is a clay jar. Certainly, it's a very big... And prestigious clay jar but it's just a big historic house really that's value depends on the presence of the sovereign. Rumour has it that the new king Charles doesn't even want to live in it and would prefer to live at Highgate or somewhere else but whether he likes it or not when he is at Buckingham Palace the standard goes up on that flagpole and the crown is in residence. Paul continues in verse 8, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul, of course, is writing to the Corinthian church, but he's specifically writing up to the people who make up the church in this passage. In his first letter to Corinthians, which we tend to read a lot more, he used, even used the image of the human body as an image for the body of Christ. And now he reminds them that while life in our human bodies is very real and hard and tough and testing and mysterious, our bodies are also vessels of something that is imperishable, something of value beyond valuation, something priceless. Something that is of immense value that is not easily produced. It takes time and it's formed through pressure and testing. Think about a simple horseshoe. It has to go through the ver- furnace and be elevated to extreme heat so that it then can be taken out when it's red hot and hammered away on the anvil until it becomes the shape for which it is intended. And that's just a horseshoe. Think about a diamond. It goes through multiple times harder testing and pressure than a horseshoe. So it can become the perfect gem that experts recognise. A diamond's formation occurs when carbon deposits... I didn't know, Like I've used this before, but this is not my writing, this paragraph. Just to be clear, I'm not a geologist. A diamond's formation occurs when carbon deposits deep within the earth approximately 150 to 200 kilometres down, are subject to high temperature and pressure. Most natural diamonds date back millions of years, if not billions of years. And interestingly, diamond development is sometimes an interrupted process. A rough diamond's formation can be disturbed due to a change in temperature or pressure. But over those years, with the heat and the pressure... That carbon deposit slowly rises until it's found on or near the surface and it is what we value as this incredible gem. So while we carry around life daily in all of its pain and trauma and testing and disruption, Paul reminds us that we also carry around another reality, something of immeasurable value. He says in verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. So you had a bowl and you dropped it and it broke into pieces. In the Western world, we might be sad if it was a valuable bowl that we lost it. But knowing that the bowl is irreversibly broken, we would collect the pieces and we would put it in the bin and we would get another one. But it doesn't have to be like that. There's a beautiful Japanese art technique called kintsugi and it comes to life in this exact situation where something gets broken. Instead of collecting the pieces and putting them in the bin, the the pieces are collected and carefully put back together and joined with gold. The cracks and the breaks become the features The result looks like what's up on the screen. It's stunningly beautiful. I hope you agree. When Paul said that we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body, he meant that the best way to glorify Christ and give testimony to the life of Jesus that lives within us is by letting him shine through our forgiven areas our healed or healing areas, and in our hope, said another way, to let the life that is within us to shine out through our cracks and weaknesses by filling them with Christ. Now I've recently, in the last month or so, been thinking about a book I read in college 30 years ago, and this does not happen often, so I've got to draw attention to it. On numerous occasions, this book is, and the model that I'm about to explain that's within it has come back and impressed itself on me. George Eldon Ladd, if anyone has read any of Ladd's textbooks, was a well-respected, much-loved professor of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary and he wrote a number of important books that became either classics or textbooks or both. And the one of them that I've found myself continually going back to in this last month or so is called The Gospel of the Kingdom. Even the cover looks old. It's an old book and it's not particularly big but it stands up well after 70 years of reflection. It was first published in 1959. There's an important model in it that Ladd describes that's always travelled well with me and it's helped me on innumerable occasions when I've wondered what God was doing or why God was doing what was happening or wasn't happening and it wasn't the way that I wanted it to. And I hope in describing this model it will help some of you as well. So here it is. Perhaps you already know it but you didn't know where this model came from. But hang with me and let me explain it to you. In this model there are two horizontal lines. You can see them there on the screen. The solid bottom line represents the world as it is known. The Bible starts with the creation story in Genesis chapter 1 and then we move through, to the old, through the Old Testament. Of course, the Old Testament isn't the only history represented on this line. All histories are represented on this line. Egypt, Greece, China, indigenous peoples around the world, including Australian Aboriginal peoples, along with everyone and every other history. It's all represented by human history on that line. And this line travels along and it continues to travel along with small winds, but it's also marked by huge loads of sin and damage through every means possible including injustice abuse war theft name your evil both personal and corporate this is the world that you and i know and live in and deal with every day and whether it's a new law that the government are bringing in that you don't like Or an orientation in the wider culture that you don't like, or in environmental challenges facing our world, this is the world that we know and live in and encounter. That's the bottom line on this diagram, metaphorically and in reality. But that line is interrupted in this chart by God's intervention in human history through sending his son, Jesus Christ, just over 2,000 years ago. You can see that first red arrow, the first coming of Jesus. Lad calls it the first coming. We studied Matthew for two years as a church together and learned about the life message and the achievement of Jesus in that first coming, which ended with his crucifixion, resurrection and ascension. John explains God's motivation in the verses I hope I've used more often than any other here at Mitcham. The most famous verses probably in the Bible, and yet the ones that I felt God put on my heart to impart in my time here. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. For God did not send his, world, his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's the first coming. Back in Ladd's model, the world represented on this bottom line was condemned to sin by its evil. But rather than wipe it out, God sent his Son, Jesus, to begin another way, to open another era. The prophets of old had spoken about a new age or a new covenant inaugurated by God. For example, this is what Jeremiah said. He predicted, "...the days are coming, declares the law, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke the covenant, though I was a... It's all bottom line stuff." though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, And remember their sins no more. Promised and prophesied by Jeremiah hundreds of years before the first coming of Jesus the Messiah. And then while Jesus was here on earth, he taught his followers this. We do this every month as a church when we gather for communion. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you, thus beginning a new era. So sticking with lad's model, friends, I don't want to make it into a lecture room, but I think this is helpful for us as we engage in the world. Jesus came on earth and introduced a new age which is represented by the dotted line that you see on that higher horizontal line which will turn into a solid line when Jesus returns in his second coming. Lad calls this line the aged come. Jesus taught us to pray for this when he said in Matthew 6:10, "Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is coming to earth to transform what needs transformation. Our mission is to live in the fallen world with our eyes on the coming kingdom of God. That is, as the age to come arrives, let God's kingdom supersede this fallen world. We're not to destroy this world like some kind of American, kind of, you know, out there kind of people kind of imagine it's going to all end with explosions and things. We're not to destroy this world, but we're to let God's kingdom come on earth ...as it is in heaven, to redeem it, to heal it and to rightfully claim it again. But for those of us who follow Christ and have invited him into our lives, this presents a challenge, doesn't it? We live in hope of a new era or kingdom or age coming but we do so in a very fallen world. And that's represented in the rectangle that's in the centre of the model, if you could pop it up again, thanks Nathan, of the diagram... Sometimes that that box that's right in the middle, we live in between Jesus having come and Jesus returning. We live with our feet very much in this world, with our eyes on the world and the age that is to come, that has been breaking in. Sometimes we see signs of God's coming and triumph in this world, but other times we see too much of the bottom line having its way in illness and disease and injustice and persecution and... Add your own to the list. I hope that's helpful for you as you engage in the world and wonder why some things happen and other things don't and why prayer becomes so important as it helps us elevate our eyes and our hope to the coming kingdom and God's reign over what we encounter day to day. This is why Paul reminds us that we live with these two realities in verse 10 as we've seen. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, reminding us of what this world did to our Lord, so that the life of Jesus, the resurrection power, may also be revealed in our body. And he goes on in the last two verses, For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, But life is at work in you. Said another way, we live in the now and the not yet. Sometimes things feel very much like now. And at other times we're reminded that the not yet is coming and will win. And thus we have hope. So in the meantime, we have this treasure, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us by our invitation of Christ into our life but we very much carry it in clay vessels. And don't each of us know that? There's a story told about Abraham Lincoln after he defeated Stephen A. Douglas for the US presidency. The two of them were together in the east portico of the Capitol building, waiting for Lincoln's inauguration. The president-elect was being introduced by a senator and Lincoln was standing next to him, holding a copy of his speech, a cane, and his tall silk hat, like you can see here. And as he got ready to speak, he looked for somewhere suitable to take his hat off and place it. There was nowhere. Having lost the contest, Stephen A. Douglas quickly stepped forward and took the hat and held it for President Lincoln. He then went back, holding the hat, and sat in the seat and whispered to his cousin who was sitting next to him, if I can't be president, at least I can hold his hat. Hold on to that hat, friends. Treasure it and take care of it. Feed it. Grow it. Encourage it to others. Do what the writer of the Hebrews exhorted when he wrote, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Excuse me. To the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So thank you for three wonderful years. Sorry, emotional. Um, very, we have together very much come through the storm of lockdowns and COVID together. And we now face the future not fearful of what might come along that bottom line of Lad's diagram, which is this world, for we know that Jesus has come and we know that Jesus is coming again. And we are not afraid, even though we may tremble at what lies around us, because as John wrote, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you and me, us jars of clay, We carry something of extraordinary value and hope. The gift of Christ to the world, who guides, empowers, heals and brings hope and meaning for a world that needs the age to come, to come. Amen. Now, I think Rod is going to come out.